Hello and welcome back to the EPP Industry Insight Series podcast, which is brought to you by our friends at Elite Performance Partners. My name is John Porch. I'm the editor at the Leaders Performance Institute. And earlier today, as I record this, I had the pleasure of listening to Matty Clements, the acting director of the Australian Institute of Sport, talk to EPP founding partner Dave Slemon. For those of you who don't know, EPP are a performance consultancy and search firm highly regarded across sport. Anyway, it was an early, if not necessarily bright, morning here in the UK. The first snow of the season had just fallen in London, where I am based, and also at EPP HQ in Bath. Matty, by contrast, joined us from Sydney on a limpid summer evening. It was 30 degrees Celsius, she told us. Not that Dave and I were in any way envious, but in all seriousness, we were both looking forward to sharing this conversation with you. Matty began by recounting her career journey thus far, but the focus soon turned to the role of psychology in modern high-performance sports. Her views are fascinating, and at one stage she compares psychology to the field of marketing, which I hope illustrates that this is more than your average chat about psychology in sports. Those of you who are already familiar with Matty will not be surprised. Anyway, we'd better get into it. We hope you enjoy this chat between Matty and Dave. Matty, good morning, good evening. Great to see you. How are you getting on? It is evening here. It's evening here. It's 30 degrees. It's beautiful. We've already had that gloating offer. So um, <laughs> everybody knows it's 30 degrees with Matty. It's minus two with us. It's been snowing yesterday in well, a lot of England. Uh, I'm in Bath. And it's, uh, yeah, so we just got that off air. So nobody else has to uh, <laughs> enjoy that. But listen, it really appreciate you taking the time to to speak with us and we obviously know each other a little bit just from kind of a, a while back and when John asked about people who we thought could be on no pressure here but I thought yeah Manny would be a really good person to speak to <laughs> we've got we'll have a breadth of you know senior leaders like yourself but also a lot of practitioners on their journey so keen to help people who are on that journey today kind of just learn a bit from you and kind of your yeah. experiences could you maybe just start with sharing a little bit about your journey to get where you've got to yeah absolutely so I began my career as a psychologist, as a junior psychologist working in one of the uh, state institutes of sport here in Australia, the South Australian Sports Institute, and just got this brilliant opportunity to work in a couple of the programs that I was doing. I was there on a PhD scholarship originally, um, and just got this wonderful opportunity to get immersed in a couple of the programs as a sports psychologist at the time. And then from there, found that working with people was my sweet spot and then from there moved into a little bit more into the overtime into the well-being and mental health space and setting up systems for sport particularly a few of the professional sports and then more broadly into setting up the systems and the programs that sit behind those systems um, for the development of people and then um, had the great opportunity to go to back to the Australian Institute of Sport. I've been there for a while as a senior sports psychologist, but got asked to go back and set up the Athlete Wellbeing and Engagement Program there for the country and then moved into the People Development Wellbeing exec role. And now I'm the acting director of the Australian Institute of Sport. It seems like maybe a little bit of an unusual pathway for a psychologist, I guess, but I believe we're in the business of people. Yeah. Um, and that is what I got trained to do. So, yeah, I'm in the right spot. We get a lot of people who we talk about kind of specialisms and technical expertise. Mm. And then you've got the general management and leadership skills that you need to be at the top. And they're not the same, you know, and, and I think so like the specialist generalist is, is something that 
phrase you've coined. Yeah. How do you find, how has it, this is completely going off script because I didn't, uh, which is great. Uh, I was thinking. <laughs> it was always going to happen. <laughs> you're right. But your, your journey from, you know, you're in the overarching leadership position now. How different is it to being a kind of specialist? And, um, and what are those yeah. different skills that you need? It, it's really, I spoke to a group about two months ago, Dave, of performance support practitioners they happen to all be females but one of the things I said to them and I think this is really pertinent Ed, that when you're doing your academic training as we all do in our particular expertise yeah fundamentally what you get taught is how to look at a problem through a framework and move through it yeah that is no different to being in a, in a leadership role it's just that it's a different it's often different problems, isn't it? So what I think my psychology training did was, okay, there's an issue here. How do you get the information you need mm. in order to work through how to help in psychology to work with that and to give that person in this or the client the skills to be able to work through it themselves? Well, that's leadership really, isn't it, when you think about yeah. it? You look through, it's just... A few more people involved might be different problems, but it's not about me doing it for someone else. Yeah. It's actually about getting a great team and the team feeling empowered to resolve and work through problems collectively. And I think what um, people with backgrounds similar to mine, they, they often think, well, that's all I can do versus it's a great background to move into other areas if you want to do it. Um, yeah. 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 And, you know, my bias, actually, and I'm not just saying this because you're here, is that psychology would be one of the areas that does give you that ability to speak to other parts of a sporting organisation. That's kind of the whole point is that you are, yes. I mean, of course, you might have a specialist role on mental skills for players possibly, but, you know, I, I see it, well, and you will see it much more kind of the, the breadth of where psychology can fit is much broader, but we'll come on to that bit there. That's a whole part yeah. of our chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I, but, I think that, but I think that's right. And I think one thing that practitioners often make the mistake on, or don't, not mistake, but perhaps don't back themselves in on, is the way you're trained is something that absolutely works for that particular time in your career. But if you think about, it's just problem solving. That's a brilliant point. Have you, if you look at how you've developed as a leader, is the to how you were trained at the start, mm. how, have you, how have you kind of looked to develop yourself kind of to improve in these areas outside your poor kind of technical knowledge and expertise? Is there anything that you've kind of developed yeah. away from the pure psychology piece? Yeah. Uh, one, one of the my big gaps in my skill set, Dave, was the financial, the business side of things. So once I'd gone through and done some psych stuff and thought, what's the next thing? For me, I, I went back and did an executive MBA at Melbourne Business School. I was lucky enough to get a scholarship there. Yeah, and it, it, so it wasn't necessarily about, hey, I wanted to be doing such and such. It was more about what I left with from that was the confidence that I could, at a very, very high level, have a conversation about finance. At a very, very high level, have a conversation about marketing. And actually, marketing and psychology aren't, I don't think, two different, two vastly different things in many cases. But that sort of, that breadth of yeah. knowledge helped me with a bit more confidence that I could maybe step into something 
other than what yeah. I've been traditionally practicing in. Could you maybe just um, go into a bit more detail about that comment you just made about marketing psychology? That's really fascinating. <laughs> marketing is about under understanding and leveraging what people are interested in, what floats their boat, and getting them to either engage in something that maybe they didn't think they wanted to buy or et cetera. That, yes. That's some, there's some psychology behind yeah. that. So what, you know, how do you message something so that people can hear it the way they can absorb it? I found marketing fascinating that there was, I felt there was a lot of synergies or mm. with some fundamental psychology stuff there. And it's about people, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Are there any key moments looking back now, kind of almost sliding door moments where you go, geez, those are important. They really shaped me. Are there any looking back that you go, Oh, if that wouldn't have happened, I wouldn't have been the person I am or in the place that I am now. Um, yeah, there's a few, but I think one of the most important things I've reflected on more recently about my career is to just give things a go. Yeah, just to give things a go. And if, if it's not for me, then I'm a bit closer to knowing what is for me. Even the current role I'm in, I, I was really lucky that, I got actually got asked to do it. And it probably, to be fair, wouldn't be necessarily something that I would have felt confident to put my hand up for. And the first couple of months of it was, I was a bit like a deer in headlights for the first couple of months, but then I found my feet in terms of, okay, I don't need to do it the way other people might expect me to yeah. engage in the role. I need to do it the way that's authentic to me. And then at least I've given it a red hot shot, trying to be someone you're not or trying to do it a way that you think people want you to sit in a role is really, really hard work. And I don't think it's enjoyable versus, okay, what have I, what are the skills? What do I bring into this, yeah. uh, whatever the role is and how do I leverage those? And how do I utilize the absolute amazing people around me who have got really different skills and, and how do we work together as a team? And I think, so I think the last 12 months has been a real sliding door moment. I've been given, I have just been given some amazing opportunities in terms of sitting on the exec to set up athlete wellbeing and engagement. Who knows, who would have thought 10 or so years ago, those roles, that role would exist um, yeah. in Australian sports. So I've mm -hmm. been really fortunate that people have tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, would you be interested in, yeah. Yeah, that's a brilliant point. I get the point you make around. I'm thinking of people now, the practitioners watching this, go through their journey of not sure whether they can be themselves. You know, of, of going into an environment where, and you you've been in them. You know, professional sports teams environments maybe especially can be tough. And and you're yes. kind of going in. You're not. You, you feel like you've got to conform. How did you go go in? And any tips for people who are kind of going into their role? But how do you be yourself? Yeah. in those roles it's, it's not maybe not as easy as it sounds or maybe it is no I, I, and david and you know I've, I've spent time a lot of time in professional sports and often been one if not the only female in in those particular organizations i think over time i got a bit more comfortable with what do i bring to why am i here so what is the role that i'm being asked to fill and how do i utilize my strengths in that role I very much believe in the motto that when you start you need to listen and observe and understand how a program or a organization works to then understand how you're able to best engage and be effective and influence 
in that. So I think that is a skill of mine to be able to listen, understand, and then work out, okay, how do we how do we make the most of this? In order to be myself, I think that's something I've probably only more recently got comfortable with and that might be something that comes with age it might be something that comes with kids I don't know but it absolutely is something that I've definitely found a lot easier more recently to do but it's always a work in progress because I think I'm always going to have that voice that's you know oh you've made a mistake there that wasn't exactly that didn't come out exactly the right way or you've done better so I'm always going to have that voice it's just learning how to manage that voice so it doesn't override an impact my confidence or the way I engage. Yeah, and I think your point you make about being the only one is something that I think we've seen a bit more of, or I've been maybe a bit more aware of recently. And, you know, as a white bloke, that's clearly not an issue for me. You know, kind of most of these environments, most people look and sound like me. Well, maybe not sound, but definitely look like me. And so you're kind of like, you know, I've got a business partner, Anna, who will go into a lot of these male-dominated environments and often she might be the only one. It probably took me a while to realise how tiring that might be. Yes. And also your point about bringing your own thing and making sure you know what you're about. And even if you're Asian or black and and we had a similar situation with groups that we tutor on, they had the same experience. Is there any kind of advice you can give for people who are in those groups? Because you've very much been through that. Um, Yeah. Anything more you could say about how you? Um, I think um, it it can be exhausting. What uh, it, there's been some fascinating experiences over the last you know decade where uh, there'll there'll be a meeting and people will talk to the person sitting next to me who happens to be a white male, and I'm I'm the one that's there. <laughs> this work I've actually went I'm the one here that yeah. is meant to be leading this um yeah, meeting. Yeah. anyway um so there's been some fascinating experiences like that and it is it can be tiring but I think there's it's also a real privilege to be the first as yeah. well um I think how do you how do you have impact I think it's important not to let it it's yeah it's actually not you it, 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 and to not take it really personally and that is really hard and not to think about okay well what could I do differently um the whole time versus okay what collectively could we do differently so we all feel a bit more included but what is my role in that is important because I'm sure at different points I I would have made someone feel excluded so it's about how do I play a role but how does everyone else and I can't own it all yeah because that would be absolutely exhausting I think being me makes it heaps easier rather than trying to behave in a way that I expect people to behave because that is really uh, I expect people want me to behave I I think that is exhausting I don't think I've necessarily nailed that Dave yeah well I don't think anybody can I mean you know as you say it can't be all on you I think it's just really an interesting point about how you get other people to recognize it but if you're the person who is the only one having to be the person to recognize it is even more exhausting because you're making it out to be about you when it isn't so I I guess there's a lot going on here but I I thought as you mentioned the only one is something that's come up recently for Anna but also for other people who you work with and it's just a really just an you know wasn't something we're going to talk about but I just thought it was really interesting (laughs) I know people listening to this will will be in that situation quite a lot of them and it must be very lonely at times. So I just wanted to, I thought it was worth mentioning. You know, that though, what you said then, Dave, about it being lonely, I think that is an important part of it to make sure you've got some people you can debrief with. Yeah. So it doesn't stay 
in your own, for me, if it stays in my head, it will wear me down versus I, I can unload on yeah. you know, some, yeah, unload with friends or unload professionally with, you know, some colleagues that might be in similar positions, et cetera. Yeah. I think having someone who's really got your back, they may not be in the same situation, but they, you can yeah. say that was pretty average. Um, and they're being in an even senior, more senior role is important as well. Yeah. And you're like, you think that's average? We'll wait till you hear about this. Yeah. <laughs> like, Correct. Some, oh, actually, that was fine. Yeah, wasn't that bad? <laughs> yeah, totally, that's totally. Right. Uh, yeah, brilliant. The next bit I wanted to talk about was your career, which is awesome, but you've worked in different places. So you've worked in professional sport, you've worked in Olympic sport, you've worked in team and individual. So you've seen a real breadth of sport in professional world and Olympics. Just interested in how you've seen kind of psychology broadly develop over that time, because, you know, it's a while, you've had a good career, <laughs> it's, it's more than a few years, so just interested how you've seen psychology develop uh, over your career so far. We're seeing the industry, and I say the industry as a whole, elite and professional sport, really starting to understand the role well-being plays in sustainable high performance. And I think we genuinely are seeing a shift in that understanding and also an understanding that great leadership, head coaches, high performance directors, et cetera, who create cultures that enable wellbeing to work yeah. and feed yeah. HP, it, it is a, we're seeing this real shift now in sport. I don't think that wellbeing when I started and mental health wasn't on the agenda like it is now in elite sport. My background was working as a sports psychologist, but it was very much about perform performance, mental skills, competition preparation, et cetera. Wellbeing and mental health, weren't they weren't seen as something to be considered in the high-performance environment. You know, two decades later, we've seen a significant shift in that. I, I'm not saying it's perfect. Please don't interpret it that way but I think we've seen a seismic shift and we've seen a big shift in the need to develop people not just athletes or players but coaches the the high performance staff performance support staff we've seen this big shift that actually that is part of elite sports so how do we get our athletes and players thriving well through having great thriving people around them so I think that understanding has significantly improved um in the, particularly in the last couple of years, that's significantly improved. And maybe that's because we recognise people have choices and people will often choose roles where they feel like they're valued, belong. Mm -hmm. Athletes and players will choose those environments, I think, increasingly as well. You've seen a shift in that for athletes as well. Yeah, yeah I think so. I think, I, think, I think people want to feel that they belong to something increasingly so want to feel like they belong to something important and are contributing to something meaningful and important yes that's performance outcomes but also to feel respected and valued in their place of work whether that's an athlete or a staff member I think that's that's significantly increased in the last couple of years I, and I don't know what's driven that maybe it is COVID maybe it's yeah. you know but people want to belong yeah you mentioned coaches uh, who are obviously so important in, yeah. in driving this. I'm just really interested in how that process has happened because, and you might not know actually because you know, these things, but how people have realised that that it is important that people do need to feel belonging. About it. How's that process happened, do you think? I, I think we've seen great coaches who do it well and maybe they couldn't articulate 
how they got a team to work to that level. So, you know, and we can all know, we can name coaches that we've seen, you know, boy, you just can bring a team together and have performance after performance yeah. there. And it is through that art of belonging that they created and meaning that they created. So I think what we've been able to observe is the value of that in terms of sustained performance. And then there's been increased, so increased awareness and then increased uh, capability building within the sector around that, as well as we've seen this shift more recently that when we talk about the well well-being, early on it was about athlete and player well-being, incredibly yeah. important. But now we're starting talking about coach well-being. And that is equally as important. We have to have healthy, functioning, high-performing coaches in order yeah. to have a high-performing environment. A coach's well-being shouldn't be suffering, and an athlete's well-being thriving. That 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 doesn't that doesn't yeah. seem like the two need to be, and all the others need to be working well to have a thriving environment and thriving culture. Is that within the Australian? kind of Olympic system or you see are you because I, I do not think that's happening in the UK um, right. I, don't, I, 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 I don't think well listen, I get shot down now when 10 people come on and go it is that's our job but, um, <laughs> but as in, I think just generally from speaking to people here as we do every day and working on a few different courses that we do that that idea it's definitely an idea that people will believe in if you told them do you believe mm -hmm. that coaches well-being is as important as players but there's still that kind of the amount of work that coaches and performance staff go into to look after the players that is still that absolute that is shifted that way is that do you think is that within the Australian system has there been a recognition well I guess if you're the leader at the top of it, it you can drive it maybe but how, how yeah is it just I think there is sports or Olympic sports that you're talking about specifically I think uh, so I'm probably referencing there's been some shifts big shifts in Olympic and Paralympic and Commonwealth yeah. Games sports in this country. I'm not saying it's perfect, please, because I, oh, no, I, I no, know no, there's no, a lot no. of work to do. Yeah. Um, but I do think to in to that exact fact, we launch our, um, the system, the Australian sports system launches its national high-performance sports strategy on Wednesday, and our vision very much states about winning well. It is about well-being and high-performance. It's not yeah. what we want. The general community wants absolutely wants to be inspired by great athletes great coaches but they need to be great on and off they need to be be well functioning humble high on integrity that it's not win at all costs anymore yeah i i, I think we're moving significantly moving away from that and actually you know, what i was thinking about is our experiences within particular kind of football rugby cricket the professional sports the challenge they have i think the olympic sports here in you know, uk sport definitely you can see there's been a shift from the no compromise way of well, actually no winning yeah. or cost isn't winning at all so the, they def, there definitely is a shift it's obviously a real challenge because the medals are still really important as how they're funded Absolutely. but i think they have or traditionally has been so they have yeah. they have shifted god there's so much to talk about to the, the development of kind of people that you mentioned so the yeah. performance staff, the coaching, how do you get that to happen in a, in a normal program when they've got so much, much stuff going on? Look, it, absolutely, it's tough. People stretched already. If you think about the people that are often attracted to elite and professional sport, they are people that want to constantly keep improving. You know, they're often reading heaps of stuff and want. they tend to want to take up the opportunities of professional development. I, I believe 
great work can be done with coaches and performance support staff being trained together. So rather than training everyone separately, bringing everyone in and, you know, training them together, I think, and educating them, giving them the same frameworks, I think is really critical because then what you're doing, back to your earlier point, is putting the expertise to the side and working out how do we work and work together as a team who all bring a different, potentially a different lens, a different expertise to problem solve. Yeah. So if you can create education and professional development environments that support that and give frameworks to work through, I think that's how you get a really high functioning team. The education and professional development, you know, if you prioritise it, it happens, right? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Do, you, do you put that within a pro, the programme? Do you, do you say, so let's say, let's go, let's go into a bit of detail. If you have a week's training, is the blocks for professional development? Is, is that how it's done? No, I wouldn't say it's weekly, but there are absolutely a lot of the a lot of the sports will make the decision to prioritise. Okay, this is when we're doing our professional. You know, we're going to do some professional development here. This is a good time in the in the season, in the four year cycle, etc. Absolutely, yeah. 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 And I think it's about it, but I do think it's about the culture because mm. everyone should be developing. It goes back to what I said. It can't just be the athletes yeah. that are being. My personal opinion, Dave, is that everyone should leave high performance sport saying they're better off. I know this is utopian, rose colored glasses, I get that. Yeah. But everyone should leave their time in high performance sport believing that they're better off from their time in that, regardless yeah. of whether you win a medal or not. That would be, I know that's I know that's utopia, but that would be so wonderful. And that's coaches, that's staff, mm-hmm. that's athletes, because you get the opportunity to have these experiences, learn all these different things, and these are that's a that's a great thing. Yeah. It, so part of that is the professional development that you get, but also the immersion experience that you get by being in this quite unique elite environment competing against the rest of the world that yeah. is something spectacular yeah completely agree and I could, we've got uh, we work with one kind of international team where it's they're kind of like the path that they want to develop a brilliant pathway for players but they want to make sure that you know when you get to the end of it you know, if you had to do it again would you and the answer is absolutely yes 100 percent. you know that, that and that's, that, that's that amazing that's yeah. that is a wonderful i don't think we're there or i've not seen anyone completely there yet but that is a great aspiration, I think. For yeah, yeah, I think that's a great aspiration for us all to have. Do you know what I look back now in my career, and I think you look back and you go, I didn't actually enjoy it that much. I didn't. It was what I'd always wanted to do my whole life was to yeah. be a professional. And you look and you go, oh, the first few years were really hard, really hard. And it's not so you get out the back of it that you start to enjoy it. But having said that, your point around where you better off for it, absolutely, because. I developed some resilience and then, you know, a lot of the tough yeah. stuff is actually what makes you as well. Yeah. So it doesn't have to all be good experiences to, to shape you. That's a hundred percent, Dave. So I'm not saying that it should be seamless. You you should, yeah, everything should be a hundred percent perfect. I'm not suggesting that, but to be able to say through this time in a late sport, I am, I have grown as a person. I'm better off for this experience because I got, went through this. I learned these skills. I made some great, great mates. I met all these amazing people. I had this great, it's the whole combination of it that I think is important. It's not about having just this beautiful, and no one does. It's just seamless. Nothing ever goes wrong. That's not, that's actually not a good, helpful experience. 
Yeah, no, not at all. Okay, I'm really interested in the piece you made around kind of like belonging and kind of purpose almost. It is although that maybe slightly different, but how and culture, how you develop a culture which or that sense of belonging, both if you're in a team sport, how how you go about I don't know if there's a tension between developing it as a group and then developing that individually. How do you kind of how do you do that as you how, how do you personally kind of look at that within a group? Because I guess the sense of belonging should be to feel, I'm guessing, bigger than yourself, but also mm-hmm. you, you've got to put your own meaning on it. How, how do you balance those I two? Do, I, I think you've got to do both. So I think absolutely you have that larger team vision, purpose, goals, and how, how do you get behind that as a team? But then individually, what's your contribution to that? How do you make that meaningful to you? Yeah. And and that might not look exactly the same as the person sitting next to you, but I yeah. think you have to have both because not everyone's going to be motivated by the same perp- uh, the same thing, are they? But if I can feel like I'm contributing in this way and contributing to this bigger picture, but also contributing to my own growth or providing meaning to my family back at, back at home, whatever it is through yeah. this, that's how I create the connection individually. But it has to be both. Yeah. And do you do work with kind of coaches, with staff as a, as a whole I'm trying to, on this stuff? So is it kind of like, and I'm not, I doubt you do it every day, but is it a case of, right, we've got a belonging session or a purpose session or a culture? Do you, is that stuff that you do explicitly? I, I don't, I don't, but we abso- um, absolutely have in the past. And then yeah. there absolutely is that available, that, those skill sets and uh, expertise available now within the Australian system, yeah. I I think it's really important that team dynamics is a really important part of of a successful team. I'm really interested in how the coaches interact with it. So I guess coaches, some of them might be a bit uh, protective or of of kind of their space, but how have you seen kind of a lot of coaches listen to this stuff? So really interested in terms of, and I imagine there'll be ones going, oh yeah, that's, I'd really like to do more of that. That work sounds really impactful and valuable and it is the way it should be. How do kind of coaches interact with it and how would people watching who are coaches maybe do able to do more of this? I think more recently we've seen high-profile coaches, at least in Australia, come out and talk publicly about the pressure, the distress on them personally and on their family that goes with the job. And I think through that awareness and that very brave an open conversation with the general public that's enabled other coaches who may not have felt so comfortable talking about how they were traveling seek individualized mental health support either for themselves and or for their family so i think through that role modeling of help seeking behavior we've seen we see a shift in awareness i don't think we're where we need to be but there dave you know that the pressure that coaches are under is so significant. The stress, the the public interest in in their own performance, it's a it's a big responsibility, and with that comes the importance of them looking after their own mental health and well-being. And it's the the point about the families is so important because most, I guess, a lot of the times the coaches. You know, think of an international coach recently he was like he was fine with it but his fam you know he could deal with it because that's he knew that's part of the job but it wasn't part of his family's job 
yeah. and yet they're the people who are still under scrutiny and, and this thing. And I think actually really nice, you know, Gareth Southgate coming out. I just sort of read an interview on the way in of, of him saying, I'm not sure whether I'll keep doing it because yeah. I actually didn't really like some of the stuff that happened in the last 18 months. And um, I'm not sure my family are really up. Just the honesty of like, yes, it's a privilege to do this job, but it's not worth everything. And yeah. the energy it takes and my family, I, I just thought it was really, I mean, he seems outstanding, but it was just really refreshing to hear him actually say that. And for people, yeah. and people need to hear it because the scrutiny right. people get put under isn't necessarily right. And it's, it can be binary. Although it seems that it's been quite nice that the reaction to England losing and that they can still see the play well. So it's not, it's not as bad as it could be, but. Yeah. Um, and we've, in Australia, we've seen some really ugly coverage in the media of yeah. particular in professional sport of um, some professional coaches, which absolutely has impacted those individuals significantly as well as their families and some of them have come out more publicly later on and spoken about it we in in the last 12 months we've had some of those individuals come in and talk privately to some of our various groups of high performance directors and or coaches and i think through those very honest conversations that aren't recorded there's been a real awareness that well, if that person experienced that, then, well, that is actually what I'm experiencing and maybe I should go and seek some support on that so I can be great at home as well as at my job as well. So breaking down those barriers is really important and I think that's the shift we're seeing. We've seen that with athlete wellbeing, haven't we? So athlete yeah. and player wellbeing, athletes and players talking about their experience Often, once they've left the sport because they haven't felt safe talking about it whilst they're in the sport, we need absolutely need to see that shift more into talking more openly about it when you're a player because that shows a culture of safety, of psychological safety. So I think we're seeing how that's played out with athletes and players now increasingly play, um, with coaches and that broadens the, broadens the opportunity for people to say maybe that's something I should do. If that yeah. coach... Or can person can put their hand up and say, this is my experience and I can also get some help. Yeah, fantastic. I had two questions left and you've now given me three. Uh, because yeah, <laughs> Just that you talked about the culture of psychological safety, which yeah. is something that we've seen becoming increasingly important and being talked about and being aware, people are at least aware of what that is. Could, could you maybe just explain to people kind of, kind of what that is and how you maybe can create that? Yeah. <laughs> It's a big, question. Um, <laughs> a big question. So psychological safety really simply is where individuals feel okay to voice an, a voice an opinion, to, to take a thought-out risk, I guess, so to and fail um, and yep. not be punished. And I guess feel okay to be them in, a, in an environment that's high-performing. And I think psychological, I, I've believed this for many years, Psychological safety is the core to sustainable, high-performing teams. I, I really, truly believe that. If, yeah. if people don't feel okay to take a a risk that's yeah. consi considered risk in order to better performance, et cetera, how, how do you achieve great things? Psychological safety is critical for creativity. If I'm being encouraged to throw a whole heap of innovative new ideas around, how will that happen if I'm not psychologic, if the culture is not safe to throw an idea out and go, well, that wasn't the best idea, but that's okay. You've still got a job. You're still yeah. here and we want to hear more. 
You, you yeah. can't be innovative if you don't have psychological safety. And I think there's a whole heap of different ways to create it. But one of you know simple things about leaders creating team meetings where people can throw ideas around and people don't get shut down, making yeah. sure you know leader the quietest person in the room also gets asked, "Hey, what do you think about yeah. this?" Rather than the most dominant voices. So how do how do you create really i know that's a really basic example but how do you create a meeting where there's an opportunity for all to put a thought forward the leader drives that yeah that's amazing i do the question was going to be how do you next question was how do you incorporate some of this some of the kind of mental health and well-being work into it but you know what that um, i mean if you can think of anything you want to add please do but that seems to be a perfect a great encapsulation of you know, starting to do something, and if you're a coach or you're somebody who creates those meetings, that that's the way to. And I guess the if you, the psychological safety piece is the bit that's going to actually it's completely linked, isn't it? If you feel safe, you're going to feel a sense of belonging. You know, your well-being will increase. So you know, it becomes self-fulfilling. I guess if you get that. And I've seen some great leaders do this to role model psychological safety. I also need to, as a leader, be vulnerable and to say, hey, I. I really stuffed this up. This, that wasn't, oh, I really didn't do the best job on that day, but I've learned from it. Or, sorry, I, yeah, I felt quite overwhelmed today, I'm, but I've, I've got to, yeah. To be a bit vulnerable is okay. And I think we're seeing that shift in leadership in sport now, that it's okay to be vulnerable and you can still be a great leader. And in fact, you, you will be a better leader as a result of being vulnerable. You don't have to be perfect all the time absolutely nailed it that's brilliant thank you i, I kind of like there was a, I, I thought we could continue on a couple of these bits but you've that is just a lovely way to finish i think um i guess having said that i've got one, well apart from this question which is also <laughs> um, yeah well, i guess just thinking of where we are now where you come from where you think it might go i just think looking to the future as you said absolutely right you know nothing's perfect I and mean, i don't think anything ever is you've got you know, you're involved with people right and, and they're fallible and they're flawed and they're human so um yeah. it can never be perfect where do you think this stuff's going do you have a wish or kind of look into the future of like the vision of like this is how it can get even better or a way that you think you're going or it, it can be an ambition or kind of a prediction or a trend whichever way you think this kind of this yeah. what this space is going I think in the next couple of years, and particularly in the next decade, we will see more and more leaders with backgrounds in psychology, people, people development, etc. Because we are in the business of people. Yeah. Amazing people, but people. So I think we will see a, a shift in the importance and recognition that is placed on that skill set in the leaders of of the future. I think that's awesome. Thank you. I imagine there might be like a, a request for another one just so we can go into some of these into more detail, but that yeah, was fantastic. Yeah, happy to. Um, happy to. Was, I loved it. And thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. I know. I hope you're okay there. Only 30 degrees. Well, we're freezing <laughs> over here. But, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll tolerate it. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you.